out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's face it, there's nothing better in life. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American band Aberdeen, because I spoke to the uh, one of the, well, probably the main member of the band, John Gigas, to find out more about life, love, poetry, all the other kind of groovy stuff that happens when you're in that world that is indie pop, rock, and all that other stuff. Anyway, after quite a lot of chat about this and that, political times, you know the stuff. Um, it's 2020. There's a lot to talk about. We got down to the other exciting subject, the early musical influences that shape the people we are today. This was John's response. John, take it away. I think it's just as much as as how you could you know describe your you know the bands you liked at that point. It's like I just did saying this is very English. I think it was there, there was a sort of very American um, thing for for you know certain certain few. Not not really well. I mean, popular, but not not mainstream. I guess you know there are certain few people, kids of the of the right age. Um, it was kind of a second wave, probably a third wave of punk, and kind of the second wave of alternative, uh, alternative, just classic alternative, you know, music, um, like. I was, a, you know, I was a, a, I was a little bit young, so I m- missed pretty much everything good, you know. Um, but it stuck around long enough to have sort of a repeated influence, you know. Like everybody, by the time you got to sixth, seventh grade, everybody had a copy of the Violent Femmes album. Everybody had a copy of Standing on a Beach, you know. Some people had Ramones records on me so much. Um, you know, never mind the bollocks was, uh, you know, uh, and then, and then at some point, you know, there was, you know, uh, punk and, 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 and all that sort of took on, you know, h- hardcore was, a. I was not a big hardcore guy. That kind of, kind of became, you know, if, if you were of that age discovering music and kind of went hand in hand with skateboarding too, you know? Yes. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, there was there was a lot of more aggressive and 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 heavier, maybe not heavier, but you know, just like more punks, punk and punk and metal kind of combining at that age for a lot of people. And I've seen it now. Actually, it's interesting because I, you know, I didn't. A lot of the people I knew from from this scene, this music, kind of started where you know. Um, where you're describing and, and they don't, they didn't really, you know, it's kind of uncommon. You never, you didn't really see that, you know, you'd have to kind of relate to people, um, from their OG punk perspective, um, which, you know, describes a few people I know, you know, pretty well. Um, like Dave, Dave Newton, who recorded the Aberdeen stuff. He's very much your, you guys are probably close to the same age and yes. you know, same bands at the same time and, this, and they didn't it's you know it's hard to sort of understand but um more lately like um you know talking to like guys i know on the internet who are a little closer to my age um you know some of the like filipino fans and and uh 
and some of like, you know, just uh, guys from, I don't know, South America and other countries, you do see a, a lot of that they were, you know, they, they, sh- they share a, you know, a, a fandom for some punk and metal stuff, you know, it's not, it's not so, um, it doesn't, so that, that, that was, that was kind of an intro, you know, and then the, the progression was really fast from there, you know, it's like that, that'd be one year. And then the next year it was like, you know, you had the next three or four or five, whatever cure albums. And, and at that point, you know, um, that would be about the late eighties there when, you know, the sisters of mercy were still making records. The cure was still making you know, their greatest records. Um, so that kind of, um, late eighties alternative scene was really big deal. It was really influential. Uh, we, we had, um, an MTV show here. I don't know if you know it called 120 minutes that like pretty much influenced everybody my age, their taste equally. That was really the main thing. And also we had, um, you know, a few radio stations, uh, 91X in um, San Diego and KROQ in L.A. So if you were lucky enough to be around those, I don't want to hang up on you. Yes. Um, if you're lucky enough to be around those, then, you know, you got you got some pretty, pretty cool stuff. And and then, of course, within the next, you know, year or two, um, that that, you know, that that evolved pretty quickly. Um, and. You, you know, you started getting the cooler bands, you know, coming out the, um, you know, the later creation stuff started hitting the airwaves. Yes. Uh, so what was your, what was the sort of first single? Because you're probably a bit younger than me, aren't you? You're probably five years younger. So you probably didn't, I don't know, you, you were probably, yeah, you definitely missed punk, didn't you? So did you, I just wonder what your kind of first single and first albums were. The first, I mean, the first, the first albums I bought when I was basically, I think, maybe 12 years old, you know, sort of the first, you know, you have your own money in the record store. The, the way I remember it, I may have bought both at the same time, or I can't remember which one I bought, but it was either a picture disc of Quiet Riot's uh, Metal Health <laughs> or a cassette tape of... Um, uh, songs from the big chair by Tears for Fears. So it was very, at that point, it was very pop. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't, I didn't really buy anything till, you know, yes. or I, that's, you know, I, I didn't really get into the cooler stuff. And that's when, you know, when you got into the cooler stuff when you started like trading tapes and stuff. And, you know, it was. Because, because, because interesting enough, you know, because in a very simplistic way, you'd, you know, like I mentioned, there was the, there was that kind of um, I suppose in the seventies there was a very glam thing, and then you had the sort of Led Zeppelin bands and a bit of the heavy rock stuff that went on, and obviously punk. But then you had prog rock, and I had a brother who was seven years older than me, so he was um, he was really into prog. You know, he he loved his Yes and Genesis, and I used to love to sneak into his room and listen to these with great enthusiasm because it was just so different to what I was listening to on the radio. But then. And, you know, punk, I was too young, really, for punk. But then it was kind of, yeah, you had that post-punk period in the early 80s with, you know, Gang of Four and Magazine and Peel. 
But then I was the real indie kid. You know, I was at that age where I started to listen to this DJ called John Peel and sort of being really obsessed. And I've always put indie, Dan, the classic indie of 83 to 87, which is the years, the years of the Smiths, you know. And, th and there was definitely a period where you got all that kind of C86 world. And I realised that David was the drummer, I think, in the Mighty Lemon Drops that appears on that 22-track compilation that came out with the NME, didn't he? Uh, you mean David that I know? Yes, David Newton. He, he's not the drummer. He's the he's the guitarist and songwriter. He's the he guitarist. Sorry, <laughs> he wrote everything. He yes. So um, yes, it was yeah. it was him. So yes, yeah, so there was definitely that period. And talking to all these bands, and it was like, oh, what happened? You know, with your your journey, and and it's sort of around eighty seven, the Smiths break up in a really messy way, and then Ecstasy came along, and there was a sort of a lot of people just went. To be honest, I've seen all the creation documentaries, so I'm right there with you. Yes, that, so there was that kind of period where suddenly the music papers were like, God, we want the Stone Roses, we want the Primal Scream, Super Dragon, Stone, you know. It's, Happy Mondays, you know, we, we want to take drugs, we want to go out and have a good time. So that was kind of the flavour of the month. So like, because I did an interview with David from the Mighty Lemon Drops and he said, well, by the time we got to our last... Oh, you, you actually, you, you did, that's cool. Yes, yeah, that's, and he yeah. meant, because, I, yeah, I, sorry, that was a few years ago, but he said by the time we got our last album, I, no, no one was interested. And the same with the Primitives. They were, you know, he said, well, to be honest... That was, that was you know, that was basically, that was like, that was the, the hammer of grunge falling. You yes. Know, at, that, at that point. And to, uh, to me, that was like, I don't know, you know, I, it's definitely like an old guy thing to say, but um, that was kind of like, that was kind of where everything went wrong, you know, to me. Like, I, there were so many good bands coming out, and like, so, like, like KROQ in LA, which is a major alternative radio station, was playing Trash Can Sinatra's, they were playing Jesus and Mary Chain, they were playing Stone Roses, they were playing Chapter House, they were sponsoring all those shows. Uh, they played My Bloody Valentine, they played all, they played Charlatans, they played everything that was great until Smells Like Teen Spirit really took hold. And and then it just, they just, you know, program director wiped out, program directors across the country wiped out everything that was, that was from the UK, basically, uh, in favor of, you know, the... Um, Seattle scene. I, I, I see grunge as, it, to me, it was a very almost... Um, what do you, it's kind of a xenophobic sort of, you know, had a sort of vibe at the time. It was almost like there was a really conscious effort to throw everything. It was just like a backlash to the 80s because there was so much UK dominance, I think, of the charts from the 80s in the US. And I, I think that I think the, the program directors at radio just got sick of it. You know, yeah. they had kind of a. They had kind of a mass exodus of all that stuff. But, then, but, but the interesting thing is that during that, you know, because it's kind of simplistic to talk about it in these kind of chapters, but there were those bands who came along just at, at the time when the indie party was definitely finishing, you know, like I said, 87, because some bands didn't, you know, like The Cure and people, but, but there were other bands who were just starting, like The Sundays were another band who were like, Oh, you, you, you're, totally you found like a huge audience at that time. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And then you had people like Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine and Lush and My Bloody Valentine. And they all kind of like there was still an audience there. It's just they weren't the flavor of the month. You know, they didn't. No, they, and it was huge here, actually. And it maintained its, um, you know, its following. Like, you know, the tree like Trash Can Sinatra is for the past 20 years, they've been able to sell out 
you know, whatever venue they'll play, you know, uh, a thousand or so people, but they can sell it out for up. I've seen them sell it out for, I swear, I don't know, five nights in a row, four nights in a row. You know, there it's, 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 there's something about Southern California, the way it, we really embraced alternative music and, and, and the UK bands in a way that I don't think it, not too many other parts of the country have. Yes. And we've helped do it too. And I think there's really, you know, I mean, it's, it kind of goes back to the Morrissey thing, how Morrissey has his, you know, a big part of his fan base here, but it's, it's kind of amazing how, how, you know, how, like what a strong for for basically being wiped out at one time like the they, UK bands really held on here yes know? but then you, you know I sort of listened to interviews with Brandon Flowers and the Killers and and they were also really obsessed with the whole UK you know the Smiths and but you can hear it. I'm not a fan I you know I'm not a fan I don't like listening to them I think it's bad whatever instant <laughs> but, you know, I get it. And I, I don't doubt that that guy's, you know, as much of a fan. As yes. But then, you know, when did you start to find your kind of musical path yourself? Because obviously I'm, I've never been in a band. I've, I've just always been the fanboy. So it's like, okay. when did you start to think, actually, I'm going to stand on stage one day. I'm going to find my voice. I'm going to find my... I don't think that was ever part of it is the thing. That's the funny that it's, uh, there was no realized sort of actualization part when I, th I think back on it it's more like um i mean it started pretty early because i i remember one of the things when i was you know doing what every kid my age was and, and skateboarding i wasn't any good at it and i knew i wasn't good at it you know i mean i, I still enjoyed doing it in the activity and all but i just knew i was never going to be any good you know i was never going to do any anything cool with it um and i started to like the music way more you know so yeah i remember like there would be a kid carrying a guitar weird guitar with a speaker you know in it around out, 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 and playing that and thinking like hmm you know maybe i like this component of the activity more than you know the the entire culture itself so you know, maybe, maybe that's a thing to do. And then it was just sort of kind of gradual. Like I knew some guys, um, you know, some, some friends of mine that one of them played guitar, one of them played drums. They were going to, you know, try and form a band. I was like, well, I, I could play the bass, I guess, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then it was just sort of like, you know, Oh, I'd pick up the guitar when, when it was there and I didn't need to be, you know what I mean? Like it was, Oh, I'll try this too. And, you know, and then I had gotten a four track because somebody, I guess that's really the thing. I guess that's really the moment is the four track. And that's, you could probably, probably, and that, that's why I can, you know, you, a lot of guys in, in the, um, in, in the pop scene, I think that's a very instrumental, it's an important instrument. It's an instrumental instrument. Um, the four, the four track itself, the four track recorder, just because, you know, that and the drum machine, drum machine would come years later, a couple years later, you know, I, was, I didn't have a lot of money. So but buying the drum machine and, and, and the four track. Yes. But I think you could play, if you could play a couple of, you know, you could play a, a you can hack out a bass part. You can hack out a guitar part. They don't really come together until you put them on top of each other and you start, 
you know, and then in the four tracks obviously gives you the means to, you know, imagine a little bit. And then the drum machine is, you know, that's, that's it right there. The drum, I think the drum machine is probably, you know, one of the most important instruments in indie pop for sure, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. It gets rid of the, the worrying drummer and the click track. But the, I think John, um, sure. Bruce Springsteen, did he record Nebraska on a four track, actually? He did, but I think I think it, what he was using, it was either four, he might have had eight because, you know, he was Bruce Springsteen even, even back then, you know, in his home studio. But, you know, he was probably working off a nice reel-to-reel you know, he probably had a little, you know, it's, it's the way those stories go down. They, they sent, you know, oh, Nebraska was probably, you know, it was recorded on a cassette. No, it was probably a pretty nice reel to reel machine. I, I don't know, you know, it was, but, it, but he did make that at home, like for sure. And that was, you know, that's kind of the legend of that, of that record, right? As he goes and he dumps it on the desk of, um, of the, uh, the A&R guy, right? And says, this yeah. is my next yeah and he said no it's not born it's not born to run go away we don't want this but he did have atlantic city on which was a classic so so as you were sort of doodling away and we'd we'd yeah god you you were right there in the middle of because every record company suddenly says give me a psychedelic band in the 60s give me a punk band in the 70s give me the smiths in the 80s suddenly you know give me you know kurt cobain mark ii so so were you sort of like Norman no mates almost like what the hell's this oh absolutely like because you know like I you know I was still listening to like all my classic alternative stuff I was probably just you know really getting into it um when when things started getting heavier um and I didn't yeah, I didn't embrace, I don't like grunge, you know, yeah. I like some bands, but I just, I still don't really, I don't have any Nirvana records, I don't care. Yes, yeah. not even the um, MTV, not even MTV Unplugged. No, no, I mean, you know, I, I like it, I get it, I'll, I'll leave it on the radio or whatever, but yeah, no, totally, it's just, I don't know. But did you, you Maybe. know, with the, going back slightly to the 80s indie world, there was all these kind of little labels, because you mentioned creation records, which were very quite tiny they had bands like you know the jasmine minx and um Beef bang pow i think as well as jesus and the obvious ones Beef as well that's alan. alan's band yeah this is alan yes good old alan and um yeah and then and then you had the pink label and then you had um vindaloo records and then you had the famous sarah records did you were you aware of sarah records and that sort of emergence at that point i mean definitely like it that was you know the the story goes that well we you know we had um we had a, a friend uh named named brant uh and he'd host a lot of um parties and and small shows you know so local bands would play and uh, all the a lot of the local bands again because of southern california sort of magic magnetism for you know classic alternative music um a lot of those bands there were a lot of sort of grungy bands and of course back to your sort of odd man out thing. Yeah. We'd, you know, we'd be the, the four AD inspired or Twee or whatever, you know, dream pop band playing with, you know, full drummer rock. And they just, it was the worst, you know, to be, you know, to be that kind of, I, th I would rather be the heavy band on, on the, you know, on the, on the wimpy bill and, you know, then the other way around, because they just hate you, you know, they just people, they just scream at you. They don't, I mean, it wasn't like that hostile, but they, you know, you get 
I mean, they just had no patience for it. You get booze. Um, but anyways, a lot of those bands, they would, would play at Brandt's house uh, and, and around coffee houses around there. They were also, you know, they were they were into Shoegaze and the Smiths and the Sundays. And they were, you know, they were twee, for lack of a better word, without doing it on purpose. Anyway, Brandt, who threw those parties, he, you know, he um, in this big house. His parents were never there. They were doctors in Africa or something. But anyway, he had an unlimited budget, I think, for, for vinyl. Um, and he would just order basically everything from the Parasol mail order catalog and any mail order catalog that was around that had all that stuff. So he, you know, people, there were people like that who had basically, you know, they had all the, all the records. Um, and, and he was really good about making tapes for people, you know. So um, he had made at least a few tapes um, of those bands for, you know, for Beth. And I heard them and was, you know, amazing music, you know, to hear that was really, that was really it. That was really, you know, hearing somebody else doing what you, you know, it was, it's not just that they were doing what I liked and what I, wanted but it was like accessible you know you're like oh i could do that you know even if you're not like oh i could do that you know you're like that's i can see how you would you know that's a path you know because you, you oh, was a lot of drum machines you know not not giant lush million dollar studio recordings um so that was that was actually really important hearing um you know yes. hearing blue because good, but I can re- I, I can remember a few of those kind of bands coming through to the Norwich Arts Centre. Because you had people like Galaxy Five Hundred who came along with, with their kind of particular style. I mean, did did bands and the, then the Cocteau Twins who had and then Muzzy Star. So there was a sort of there was a scene. See with Cocteau Twins, Muzzy Star, and even Galaxy. That was all pretty big studio music, and you had to have a lot of money to make those records. Even though Galaxy records were done at cheap studios and they didn't cost a lot of money. You know, it's still you're still paying a few hundred bucks a day or whatever it was to you know, and you got to you're, you're investing, you know, and you, you you you're and that was hard to do. Whereas sort of you could tell the the, the Sarah stuff wasn't old. I don't know there, but you could tell the budget was was it was more accessible. Yeah, it was more, more accessible to make those. You know, I maybe I could I I could just see it because you know I, I was you know I liked music enough to pay attention to those parameters you know and and, and understand the difference there, um, but that was that was and then you know then I would look out for the records myself they're hard to find you know but I'd find them in bins you know and when I could afford and it was you know Sarah Sarah was a label you could buy anything off and 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 you know. You're pretty much ninety nine percent guaranteed to like it. Yes, well, they, they certainly did develop an amazing um, cult quality. So, did how did you sort of did you have the record? Did did you sort of approach them with the first record, or did you? Um, that's, that was that was that was Beth Arzy a hundred percent. I mean, she was you know that's that's still her sort of her scene, her jam is that she's very social. That's pretty, that's kind of, you know, I'm not going to get into trash talking or anything here, but be, I'll be honest, that's what drives, that's what drives her musical pursuits and always has, you know, is, 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 um, the, the social aspect. And, and, and so she was, as much as she was always, you know, openly or pretending or whatever it was to hate 
essentially whatever we did. And it's kind of this overwhelming self-deprecation that's kind of just too far. Um, but that was kind of the presentation. But the actuality is that she was always giving tapes to people, you know, that she admired or liked or whatever. Um, and another aspect of that was that she was also, you know, pursuing friendships with, and, and, um, you know, relationships with, uh, with anybody who was, you know, any, anything she wanted to be a part of. So Matt became a part of that. They, they were pen, pen pals. I mean, they were, you know, because Matt and Claire, I think that whole scene really revolved around, there was pen, there was a big pen pal aspect of that scene. Um, so I know both of them, Matt and Claire wrote to a lot of people and she was one of them. Um, and so they, they had, you know, they had, they had, a, they had a relationship of some sort. Um, and I think she sent him, she sent Matt a tape, um, and like, didn't say anything, you know, to me about it or whatever. So, and he liked it and he wanted to put it out. You know, it was just like, yeah, okay. Yes. Cause, cause I'm one of my favorite bands and I don't think they did a huge amount on, Sarah, they did a few bits. Was the Hit Parade? I always remember they did an amazing song called "See You, in, See You in Havana One Day," which I was driving the bakery van when I was very young and having to sort of almost like stop and pull over and think, "My God, this is one of the greatest songs I've ever heard." That featured the woman who was in Meow, which um, Kath Carroll on vocals, and um, yeah, so you know about Julian Henry's like secret, you know, his um, secret life, right? Yes. Well, you mean he's kind of what what pays the bills? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's like a big wig. He's like a, <laughs> like a full on like record label executive. Yes, working with the mega stars of the world. I know. Well, it was. And funny. then he goes home and he makes these like amazing, you know, these uh, eight track masterpieces that are just, you know, total throwbacks. You know, to. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, what's the one record? The sound of the hip parade. Um, I I just used to listen to that on repeat, you know. That to me is is that was a perfect production to me. Absolutely, just everything that I would want to do in music at one point. Yes. Well, it, well it was interesting because this was probably oh, the mid '80s when he did see you in Havana on his own label, and um, John <clears throat> John Pill, the DJ, you know, gave out the address, and I wrote to Julian and. I got it and I still got the envelope and he had to send a £1.25 check postal order or whatever you gave and, um, you know, you got it. And little did you think years later when I sort of tried to find him, which I did an interview with him, and he said, oh, my God, you, 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 are, you are the kind of like media mover and shaker. You know, you, you know, you work in, a, in, in the most showbiz world and here you are on, on hit, the hit parade as this kind of completely different alter ego, isn't it? So. It was quite bold. And he's still making music. He sent me a, a new album quite recently, so that's quite... Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he's still working too, right? I guess so. Though yeah. It's all gone a bit... So so with your... You know, when you went in the studio and you created your first sound, were you... Did you, did you get something that you were pleased with straight away or were you a bit like, oh, God? Because I remember it was Stephen from, from, the Joy, from Joy Division saying that they were all a bit disappointed when they heard the sort of playback of Joy Division, but... You know, they so disappointed. So such a, such you know, not a good experience. Just 
I don't even know why I ever, I don't know why I went back. I guess I kind of didn't go back to, I guess I didn't really go back to um, the type of studio. I guess we only, you know, when we were younger, um, we were kind of like high school band or starting off or whatever. Um, There was a couple studios that were local, you know, where, where we come from, where we live, there was no music scene or whatever. So you only had a couple random studios and they were, you know, just run by, you know, nobody of any note. They never really did much unless count some of that. um, Queens of the stone age. They probably got into that. Anyway. um, We went to a couple of the studios. I knew a guy who, um, his dad, and I don't remember how I met him, but I got to say, when we were friends, he's a great guy. He he would let us record. His dad was a, uh, like a, a traditional, like Mexican pop star, you know, like Nortino or Tejano or whatever. You'd be like a, you know, like a platinum selling artist down there. And he had a studio in his house, not far from, from where I lived. Um, and we did a lot of recording with him. It was just his son, you know, uh, my friend, running things, learning, you know. So we kind of, I we had fun, you know. We made some cool. We were, I remember working all the time. We made some, some. We didn't know what we were doing, but we we did, you know, some cool, some cool stuff, and we had a lot of fun with it. And then we also um, went to a more professional local studio at one point that. Um, you know, it, it was, it was like the experience everybody they would put up. Yeah, I don't know. It was like basically a live sound engineer type guy running the place, and you know, I mean, it was fine, but it was whatever. You know, but anyway, by 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 the time we um we did this single for Sarah, that was done. Beth had a friend that she was working with up, and she was living in Los Angeles at the time. And so she had, she knew a guy who was working at a studio that's still open and operating called Paramount Studios on the corner of Santa Monica Boulevard and um, Vine Street, right in Hollywood, like, you know, total Hollywood studio. So we got like the cheap room and we got this guy, uh, Jamie Seaberth, um, who was like a total pro. He worked on a couple, uh, at least one Teenage Fan Club album, and he's got like real credits to his name. So he got us a good rate at the the small room. But um, I guess a bad part, of what was pretty disappointing to me ultimately, is that there wasn't the budget was so small. Matt gave us like three hundred bucks that that really only bought two days, you know, and that's that's insane now. You couldn't get one day for that, you know. Um, so we had one day to basically just play. We, you know, it's like we were at that point kind of a live band a little bit. We had parts down. We, you know, but it wasn't, it was not a whole lot of imagination going on. Everybody just went in and kind of put their part down. And then there was a day where we mixed and we weren't really part of that. And he did a great job because he's a pro, you know, it, I just um, wasn't what I wanted to be wasn't you know i never really want like when you said oh that's you know i want to be on stage and and that's never a thing that i wanted to do i didn't ever you know want to be the guitarist in a band you know and you play and and then whatever you i it's just that's that's not the fun part the fun part for me is the process of making music you know and being involved in that um yes 
And how did you, I mean, you know, you... So that didn't happen, and it was, I totally relate to Stephen Morris. It was, you know, it was disappointing. It was disappointing but, to hear but, back. But, but then, but then I always thought this, the first Smiths album, production-wise, was kind of a bit flat. It was when they did the John Peel sessions and Hatful of Hollow, then you thought, oh, yeah, I think they've got a better producer. So it does take a bit of time. And I know, talking to quite a few people, trying to get the right producer and the right sound is, is kind of a hard a hard gig, really. I mean, was it the... is. It's, it's tough to find, you know, but but also, you know, what I learned when I used to be a lot more opinionated about our early recording experiences because uh, I felt so confident with what I essentially wanted to do. And, you know, we found pretty quickly after that found guys who were, you know, more sympathetic to, to, to doing, doing that. But it's hard for me working as much as I have more recently in, you know, with, with it pros and in audio, um, you really have to, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to dismiss those albums that maybe I didn't like so much based on what I was looking for. Like, you know, you could say like that first Smith's album, you know, or in our case, like what we did, um, because, what it, what did happen for those records is they do in fact sound great and they're totally you know they're they're totally maybe the vibe isn't necessarily 100% of what the band would become but but the um you know the quality is there and and you know it enabled the records to be what they are yes you got to respect them basically i so you know well, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all a journey, isn't it? And often, I mean, look at David Bowie, who was my first love and I adored, but his 60s work, you know, you wouldn't have really listened to it later if it hadn't been for what he did during the 70s, because actually you're thinking, who bought this stuff in the 60s when you had, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, Jimi Hendrix, the Doors, Janis Joplin, and Bowie was making this kind of rather quirky, fey kind of folk stuff, which was just... Kind of T-Rex though, right? Like what he was doing is like early T-Rex basically. Well, I suppose, well, it was kind of a Anthony Newley. He was trying everything. You're right. Like it's only a small group of people who even appreciate that stuff now. Like nobody listens to 60s Bowie. Nobody really listens to 60s T-Rex either, you know. It's, it's still pretty, it's it's really like, you know, like it, you being a, like a fan, like you're you're going to listen to it. Yes. You know? I think the thing with T-Rex or Mark Boland during that 60s period, that he captures that kind of the really hippie vibe. And John Peel had a show on Radio Caroline, you know, the Pirates show called The Perfume Garden. And he would bring over all these kind of American bands that weren't getting played from, you know, Captain Beefheart and Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and all that kind of counterculture stuff. because that that I mean it's just a guess I don't really know what I'm talking about here but that was probably like not as influential as as you know his his other show but that was probably really influential because I know like the role that Beefheart played for all those alternative bands you know yes well pretty much influence where else would they have heard that besides Peel yeah well well in that period there wasn't Radio 1 and the and and the BBC didn't want Radio 1 and neither did politicians but eventually they had to they had to do something because they had Radio Caroline sort of you know the pirate radio station so they had to sort of say sort of give them all a job so I mean in a way all that kind of rather quirky poetry from you know t-rex and mark boland you know was kind of like if you smoked enough drugs you you would you would get it wouldn't you really let's face it it was a bit like the incredible string band and and all those other kind of rather far-right bands i mean you know they they yeah 
it's it's kind of you amazing. Gotta be, you gotta be into weird. You have to be looking for. You gotta be into. Weird. You have to be into weird. That's you have to it. be into weird. You have, and probably smoking a lot. But look, then, but you have phase one of the band, which is kind of the Sarah Records, and then that's that's kind of that chapter done, which normally is the end. But then you bring it back together again. The emo phase. The emo. That's what I like to call it now. The emo phase. <laughs> Yes. So was it difficult? Did you did you feel like, oh, God, I've got what I've always wanted. And then you went, oh, no, you've got to take it back. Like, you know, buying something, your parents say, no, you're going to you can't you can't have it. You're going to have to take it back and then give it a break. What do you mean, though? Which part of that? Like, well, the early the, the sort of up to the kind of the mid 90s. Did that that was a kind of the first phase before your O years? You know what the truth is? We were never a band. You know, we didn't, we didn't have that, we didn't have a mutual sort of, you know, I look at bands who do stuff, as I like to say, and they have this sort of, for all their problems, they have this sort of mutual interest in a pursuit of doing the thing. And they, and it's a thing that they do and, and that becomes what they're known for. And ours was always very sporadic. And I, I think um, a big part of that is being that there was a relationship at some point at the center, you know, that, that made think. there's just no other way to say it, man. Like that sort of had to control stuff, you know, and it was kind of the existence of Aberdeen was always dependent on her level of interest, you know, personally. Um, and you just could never, you could never get past that, you know? And, and then the, there was a, a lot of uh, complicating factors that, you know, became a part of that. They, they were just like, the only thing that made sense when I looked back on the sort of progression of the band would have just been to walk away at the beginning and that's it. Everything else is kind of a mistake and that sounds terrible, but it was sort of like that because there was no real, even, even the second phase kind of ended before it started, you know, and that was kind of always our vibe. Like we'd kind of do something good and then, and it would just disappear. You know, there was a lot of times I remember towards, especially the, towards the, the mid nineties, towards um, the end of the first phase where we just didn't write, we weren't writing anything. I couldn't, we couldn't, you know, and that was, it was not, it was not, you know, I was writing stuff, but. Yes. What, but but yeah. were you watching, you know, obviously the music business? Well, yeah. I mean, we'd gone from grunge, to then Britpop and then, you know, like lots of bands that were there. And I know a lot of indie bands in the 80s were thinking, oh, blimey, we, if we'd stuck with it, we'd be on top of the pops and selling a lot more records. But never mind, our day's gone. Did you, were you sort of conscious of thinking, especially with Sarah Records kind of releasing so much stuff, did you feel your, your time hadn't quite finished? And also, I remember there was a quote, isn't it? I heard sort of Jerry Lee Lewis said, 
95% of the records, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong. You know, like it was, it was to do with like basically 95% of the records are spinning because of people being in the wrong relationship. Did that kind of help the creative process, you know, at all? I don't think so. It was just, it was, it was awful to be honest. No, it, it, it no, there's, I don't buy into any myths about any of I think a lot of people really liked to pursue that with us and I probably did at a time because it made good copy and you know it, it, it heightened the interest but the reality is it was just frustrating and awful you know yeah. and, and and what I like to do is being like I said before is you know be involved in the creative process and, and make stuff you know and write and whatever um, and that just becomes impossible you know, when, when you have so much difficulty. So no, you know, there, it was, uh, I, I just think we were always, um, it was like, we were always sort of facing this sort of choked start. We could never really get out of the gate the yes. way you kind of see it, you know, and I don't mean in terms of popularity or anything, but you know, in terms of just working, you know, we never, we, we couldn't, we couldn't get into a flow or anything or, or a sort of pattern or, you know, uh, a long-term pursuit because that's because Beth's personality wouldn't allow it. That's, yeah. that's just the reality. Um, what always brought me back to, to wanting, you know, to, it's always the material itself. So in the, in the case of, you know, um, the emo phase, you know, 2000 on, that was all stuff that mostly, you know, there's a couple of new songs, but a lot of it was stuff that had been written during the Sarah phase and we never had the chance to record, you know. Um, I guess at some point back then I was kind of always thinking like, oh, you know, yeah, maybe we'll get to do an EP um, for Sarah. And then they folded. So there was that. You know, like, oh, we're not going to get to do anything, you know. Um, but I think that took took away a lot of Beth's motivation, too, you know. I don't think she had the drive to just create for its own sake and then find a home, you know. The home was kind of always factored into it. But anyway, so that, that's, that second phase, um, a lot of that was just unfinished material, you know, that I had demos of still and wanted to finish and that happens even through you could call it you know the third or sort of non-existent phase of like 2009 or whatever to now you know um on and off that like there's sort of you know i go back to stuff and i go oh, so I can, you know like the like the like the cd compilations that have that have put together it's just, you know because i have material you know, it's not it's not for any other purpose, really. Than, yes. than but but you were talking about sort of you know, being disappointed with, the, you know, when you heard the first singles on that came out on Sarah. But when when you hit the sort of the, the, the noughties period, which is still a terrible term, isn't it? The O years. Um, you know, I mean, the, the sound you created and, and captured is kind of quite magical and timeless, isn't it? Do you? I mean, that's you... different. That's a very, there's a lot of, there's a few things that went into that. Okay. Yes. Like I definitely knew, you know, I mean, I was definitely going for ideas and that's awesome that you say timeless. Cause that's actually something I used to think about, you know, and that sort of, I'd be like, you know, that's, that was a goal. I wanted to make, you know, a timeless sounding record that, it, you know, 
wouldn't wouldn't sound old, but wouldn't date, you know. Yes. Um, but a big part of that needs to go to David Newton also, um, because that's where we recorded it, and he got it, and and he worked with us, and he did, you know, he just he got the vibe, he knew what we were doing, you know. Yes. So when you so we had, that, you know, he and he's, you know, he's he's a pro too, you know. I mean, his he got his sort of um, recording school. Uh, you know, crash course in recording school, I guess, from Tim Palmer, who's the producer for Pearl Jam, who did Mighty Lemon Drops records. So, you know, just, I mean, he, you know, he like the last Lemon Drops record was recorded in Peter Gabriel's studio. So it was, you know, he was very, you know, like, you know, he, he knew, he knew what he was doing, but he was doing it out of uh, a garage in the back of his house. You know, very nicely converted garage. We built built out air conditioning, nice board, you know, at the time we were using eight ads, I think. Um, but, but, uh, but, but he got it. Like, you know, he, he knew, he knew the difference between, you know, being, uh, an engineer pushing for the correct thing and being a creative part of making something cool. You know? Yes. Which is quite amazing because that's kind of, you know, so with the homesick and happy to be here, did with how how long did that take to record that particular um, album? About a year and a half. It's about or about maybe about a year, just about a year, year. Yeah, about a year and a half because it was also very stop start. Um, we got a really strong start, and um, again in the in the middle of it before we were finished, that's, you know, uh, Beth came into the studio one day and just sort of announced to everybody that, uh, she was getting married and moving to the UK. You know, we, I think we'd gotten most of her vocals done. I think we had to book out, you know, immediately after that, a couple days to, to get some, some work done. Um, but, but that kind of, you know, we were really excited. You know, there was a vibe building. I remember, you know, Dave would even say things he'd drop, you know, and he'd say, you know, oh, I don't want to get too excited, but he'd be like, oh man, there's, you know, there's room for a band like this. And, you know, we were kind of feeling a little bit bandish. We were feeling a little, I was excited, you know, and then it just took the air out of the, out of the balloon again, you know? Uh, she, so we, we had we'd probably gotten about 10 songs part, you know, mostly recorded and, and it, at least five, six vocals done. Um, yeah, so, so then we kind of had to, it became a little more piecemeal after that, you know, once Beth left, it was, it was a little more work to finish. Um, yeah. and that's, you know, I kind of had some ideas about, about finishing the mix and they've had some other ideas and it was a little bit of a, a split at that point, but you know, it was a little bit laborious, you know, <laughs> it was not, you know, it was not the, it was not the, um... Well, it's interesting because I did an interview with, was it Colin Bluntstone from the Zombies, who I think one of their last albums was a kind of the classic, but by the time they'd finished it, they'd all broke up. And then, I don't know, 40 years later, everyone wants them to perform that album and it's been reissued and every everyone says that Oracle and something, I can't remember the rest of the title. Well, Odyssey, Odyssey and Oracle. Yes, and it was one of those ones that, where, you know, it's like, 
he looks back and thinks, God, we should have stayed together and just toured this album. We, but we just kind of didn't even, we didn't even really bother promote it. We just went, oh, look, we've had enough. So did it feel a little bit like that with you, sort of thinking, I've got this... Again, it was kind of the opposite, where we, we, didn't, we didn't really get the chance to, you know, b- before the album was even finished, you know, the band was basically over. The only thing is that I... You know, I didn't, I didn't want to just walk away from, you know, the investment, so to speak. Um, so I, I kind of did the opposite where I tried to, you know, just promote it anyway, just yes. release it as an album and, you know, try and make the best of it, um, which was really hard. It was, and one I know everyone must mention this, but I'll have to ask you. But um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which bizarrely I got quite obsessed with, I even had a Sunnydale t shirt. <laughs> Buffy fans for sure. Like, um, <laughs> and I remember Amy Mann appearing, and you know, it was all very, and the music was great. I mean, did that, I mean, how did you manage to get that particular gig? Because, you know, it's it not as good as the story. It's, once I tell the story, it's, it makes us look not as cool as not telling the story. Oh. It's, um, basically we had, um, their, 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 their music supervisor, you know, in LA there's a, there, you know, it's very, it's a scene like anywhere else. And, and one of the big aspects of uh, the scene here at any given time is the, uh, sort of coalition of music supervisors and directors, um, you know, the uh, music directors or, or music editors or whatever, and, and supervisors that, um, you know, it's kind of a big part because bands here, you know, want to get licensed to TV and there's a, just a big culture. Um, but we, we knew a guy. Um, they knew a guy. Dave had a couple friends, you know, um, his wife works in the biz. So, you know, they've got they've got friends who everybody's got friends in the biz. Um, but one of one of those friends was the um, music supervisor of that show. But he was also uh, friends with um the music editor on that show was a friend of, well, I was actually in a, with, Dave Newton was in a band with the music editor of Buffy, who was Dave Klotz, um, from his band is Fonda. I don't know if you ever knew the band Fonda. Um, they were sort of like a Britpop era, um, US uh, indie, indie pop group. Um, but Dave played in that band for a while. Um, so, it was basically long story short here, long story longer. Um, it's fun. It was supposed to be Fonda. Fonda were supposed to Fonda. were going to be the band, you know, that's at the end of the season and people were starting to get hooked up, you know? So it was like, Oh, let's have Fonda on, um, you know, because they'd done the breeders and they'd had everybody cool on. And so they had a little room to sort of play around and I guess hook up, hook up their friends. Um, so, so they had booked Fonda, but Fonda didn't, didn't want to do it. Dave didn't want to for, or his wife, Emily, the singer, for some reason, just plain didn't want to do it. Um, so they offered it to us as kind of a second prize. And me, Beth, Beth was long gone at that point. We were wrapping up the album, but I knew that Beth was a, as big of a Buffy fan as you are for sure. Maybe bigger. She's a Buffy fanatic. And I knew that the very mention of that, she would be on a plane instantly. So I was like, why not? You know, so I was like, hey, we had this offer. 
you know, you could be on Buffy. And of course she went for it. Like, you know, <laughs> she dove onto the plane. <laughs> you couldn't get her to come over here to finish the album. You could, you could never book a gig. You couldn't book gigs in the UK. Buffy though. <laughs> no, she's anyway. Uh, the, but the, the funny part of that, I think is actually pretty crappy is that, um, it's funny now. Uh, Alison Hannigan, you obviously know who that is. Is that Will- she, She's the redhead on the show. I can't Willow. Name. Willow? Willow, yeah. I think it's Willow. Willow called in sick on the day that we were scheduled to shoot. So Beth basically flew over here for nothing and had to fly home the next day just because that actress didn't want to come into work. And that's how like that's how Hollywood is, you know. There's nothing we could do. So we had to we had to reschedule. Like she just had to fly home with no door prize or anything and come back in six weeks to shoot again. <laughs> Which she did problem because she was that big of a Buffy fan. You know, yes. it, was, it was painful, but but like that was she wasn't gonna miss that for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's basically it. We were just, you know, we were we were a um we were like a second string. <laughs> but I guess it always it's always a bit, you know, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I did an interview. It wasn't with Nick Lowe. It was the guy who wrote a book about Nick Lowe recently. And it was like, how did he manage to get uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding on this soundtrack to something... Was it The Bodyguard or some some of the the biggest soundtrack in... You I know, didn't know he wrote that? Yes. I Oh, I had no idea. So he wrote it. Elvis done it, and yeah. and and I think it was on the soundtrack to the Bodyguard, which you know sold billions, really. And and it was like they wanted one more song, and 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 I think this guy. That's how it works. Every like, not every time, but I've had so I have so many of. I don't have the million seller story, but you know I have you know stories. I mean, we've because also that wasn't the first. That wasn't um, the band's first brush with uh with with buffy we had had three songs in the show at that by that point i think or at yes. least two already on the show you know so and yes. though, again probably replacements too i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna say that they were that they were look we weren't famous they weren't looking for us you know we almost every license i've ever had is 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 a similar story like that where you know you just have you know somebody and there's an opportunity and you give it your best and you just hope that you know and then you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't we've had brushes with we've got a few instances of you know some little couple soundtracky type thing every band in la has that you know <laughs> you just what you want to either be on dirty dance and the bodyguard or or the you know one of those ones because i th- i think with uh, dirty dance and i think the blow monkeys of all people are on it and they whoever That's owns cool. the publishing of that must have gone right i think I've, i can retire because that's well, those, of... those soundtracks are always have like a, an an amazing like they always have an amazing at least one few amazing like you get some gems on them like there's some 80 you know they i think it's just the same thing you know music supervisors in the 80s were you know they had good taste you know? yes they, the time. they thought that's it yeah the, the story with the uh what's so funny about peace love and understand i think it was the guy who owned the record label 
was in a bar and he heard somebody doing a, doing that song and went, actually, I think this could be the the last track on the album, you know, and it's like, who is it? And it's like, who, you know, I don't know. Had no idea who Elvis Costello or Nick Lowe would, but like, like that particular song. I can't quite remember, but it was all very... That must have been so early. That must have been like 1980 or one or something, you know. Yes, I know. Anyway, look, so then on your music, because obviously with a lot of people like, I don't know, the June Brides and Yeah, Yeah, No and The Wolf Hands, they do their musical moment. They have that five-year narrative. A lot of bands have five years. They get together, they have 12 months. They make a sound, John Peel would play it. Then they get John Peel's session. The first album, things going well. Second album, a bit tricky. And any British band who ever toured America would come back broken and they would give up. But your your musical journey is kind of quite different, isn't it? Because you, you sort of continue. We don't have a five-year period. We just don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have a period like that. No, no. you don't. It's just the start of sporadic. We don't have any, you know, the only tour we have is, um, you know, barely happened. And, and that was, you know, we booked it, not ourselves, but basically, you know, we booked it with one guy. And, and I had, you know, I somehow coaxed Bobby Ratten to, you know, headline those shows, um, which he did with just an acoustic guitar. But, you know, had he not agreed to that, we wouldn't have had a tour at all. Yes. And so, did that. And, and um, yes. So that was pretty short. And that ended his touring career, by the way, because of that tour. So he that broken that broken anecdote absolutely applies to him. That's what that's why he doesn't play live anymore. Oh right! Door. <laughs> well, what sort of no, more? Normally, it's a band, you know, because it's the kind of dynamic with the rest of the band, and just the fact that America's so big, and you come from the UK that can go from one end to the other in a day and and play in. Front. Well, and you get like you know, like being in that kind of band and trying to play like El Paso, Texas, or any smaller city, it's rough. You know, it's hard. You don't. No one's there to see you, no matter who you are. <laughs> and i mean the people who you know there may be people there but they're not excited and it's just demoralizing you know unless you know you have to be the right kind of band you have to be you have to be like really eager kids who just don't care or have enough money to you know hop around and stay in nice places yes absolutely Frankly, you, know, you don't have to really do it anymore well, normally, I think with a lot of British bands, they just couldn't, get, you know, it's the travelling from one one place to another and just feeling completely sucked up. Well, not well, so many of my favourite, like, yes, so many of my favourite bands from back then have those bad American stories, you know. Bad. But then, yeah, but you play a few more. Do you, so is that the end or do you have a few more dates? Because I always had that in, in my mind that you, you actually play with the famous Phil Wilson once. Well, that was the, that's the 2010 sort of, yeah, I guess after, so things kind of gradually fell apart after the, you know, after the homesick record, tried a couple singles, they were difficult to do. It was the same sort of setup. We were either, you know, we were either recording vocals based on Beth's vacation or visitation schedule or, I tried to go to the UK to do it sort of. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was just obstacles all around. And at some point just became not worth it. And I just gave up, you know, I was just like, I was just really not worth the money. Uh, yeah. It wasn't, there's no interest, you know, in and it wasn't at the time in a band that doesn't exist. They can't play, they can't play, they can't play live. 
can't do anything really. Um, so that's from, from, from about 2004 to 2009 or 10. Just nothing, absolutely nothing at all. Uh, but in 2000, just about 10, I think, um, a promoter I used to know uh, started started working with him. Somehow the idea, I guess Phil and um, Robert, 14 Ice Bears, were planning to come to the States. So we were kind of trying to schedule a show. Somehow we did it and we had managed to book everybody our band and uh 14 ice bears and phil wilson at the time although he later just said call it june brides but at the time it was just phil wilson so we all did a show at a club in la called part-time punks um which was like a weekly at a venue um and it was just supposed to be, I guess, sort of a one-off, but we had done a couple. It was, I guess it was more, a little more than a one-off because Beth had also booked um, somehow through some people she knew. Uh, it was going to be like sort of a pop fest uh, tour, I guess, because New York Pop Fest was happening at a similar time. Then there was San Francisco Pop Fest, which was a few days before the L.A. gig, which we didn't get enough bands to call it a pop fest, so it was just that gig. But that kind of spurned sort of interest in sort of, you know, new activity, which fell apart again for different reasons, but it, it still happened. Um, but but that's that was the Phil Wilson gig. Was just, that was kind of the first, you know, that was the first time playing since 2003. Yes. Yeah. And how did they? How did the fourteen ice bears and and the June brides, or Phil Wilson, because um, obviously they hadn't picked up and played music for ages. So, did that sort of feel? And an, I think an, Phil though had. I think Phil had been playing, you know, because he had everybody, you know, the trumpet player and the violin guy, and oh, yeah, okay. maybe he had, yeah, he might have had a new drummer, but I, it seemed like Phil had been playing for a little while because he, I think he had a couple of solo albums, at least one solo album, and. and um, single at that point i think phil had been been doing it for a, a year or two before then um and and same with robert also i i don't robert still i don't think there has been a new recording that as, as far as i know but um but i think they play occasionally depending on his personnel situation yes. you know if the people are there then, then they'll do it so i think i think both of them had actually played a couple of gigs pretty recently around that and they kind of did the same thing where they were you know booking like mini tours did you ever sort of in that sort of time ever feel like actually it would have just been easier to have got a different vocalist than beth uh yeah i mean lord knows i tried <laughs> i mean i i didn't well there is you know there's a couple of factors one is that um that's not the easiest thing in the world to replace, you know, especially at this level, you know, you don't necessarily, I mean, I've played with plenty of singers and I've known plenty of singers. Um, and it's a hard thing to find just, you know, any, any singer at all, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's just different. It's just a hit or miss. It's just as hit or miss as, as something gets, but no, I mean, you know, it's some, you know, early on, first, first, um, you know, first version of the band, and 
didn't even cross my mind. It was just sort of, I, I, I think I, you know, you just have everything in this sort of, you create an emotional space and you kind of convince you, you know, a lot of bands do it. You just say, I would never do it, you know, without that, without it being this one magical thing, I wouldn't ever try to, you know, cheapen the experience in any way. But then, you know, at some point it gets a little more practical. You're like, well, this just kind of sucks. So, you know, I did try to sort of think about it, um, during the second wave, but it was always met with a lot of resistance. Friends were always really quick to dismiss the notion because it was sort of, because, you know, that sort of myth of it being uncool. Oh, just start a new band. You know, don't, don't get a new singer, just start a new band. That's the way you're supposed to do it. You know? And that was, that was always just like, Oh, okay. You know? And, and I ended up joining other bands or starting other projects, but, um, but that was kind of the vibe. And also a lot of the time you're just met from around 2009 or 10, I really started trying to float that idea to um, the guys who I thought were still a part of Aberdeen at that point, you know, to try and just do that exact thing. But you, it was always a lot of resistance, you know, whether it was coming from outside consultation or later on inside of, you know, the people who were playing uh, in, in the group itself, there was a, it was kind of a weird resistance, you know, and later on I realized why that resistance, because they were, you know, forming their own thing that I didn't know about at the exact same time. But that's a whole other thing. Yes. Well, that's true. But it was, that was, you know, I, I look, I, 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 I wish, you know, that, that I would have been a little bit more, you know, aggressive about pursuing that, I think. Yeah, so I've, I've always, you know, one of my favourite bands, I suppose, and I think he's an amazing artist, is Lemmy from Motorhead. And, you know, they was the classic lineup of the three of them. And, you know, eventually two of them leaves. And he's the, he is the exact attitude I have now and should have had at that time. Where, you know, you know who else is the exact same thing, basically, is Robert Smith. Yes, Robert Smith, Lemmy oh, have, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of tough love. It's like, you know... You're at the band. It's, you're well, in I mean, it's smart. You know, they decided it's their, you know. Well, also, but also one thing that, that that Robert and Lemmy have that I don't, and, I, you know, I still say it, is I'm not a songwriter. You know, I'm, I, 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 do, I do the job because I just want to make music now and I don't really have a choice, I guess. But the whole time it's, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't sit and write entire songs and I have never wanted to, be the guy who just stands up and sings songs. And that's just not what I do, you know? So I didn't, it's a, it's a much different way. If you, if you, if you write the songs, you can do anything, you know, you can, you can, that's, you have that, you can take that with you anywhere. If you're a collaborator, you know, you, you know, you're maybe better at other things you start to rely on people a little bit more, you know? Yes. Which, which, which then leads to your your latest musical endeavor, which is the legendary House Cat. So, how did that how did that start to develop? It, the exact the exact same way that you um, you know, pretty much exactly what we were just talking about. You know, because I, like I said, because I don't write. Well, I do write, but I, because it's not you know sort of my main. Yeah, you know, because that's just not what I do from the start. Um, 
Yeah, I was always collaborating with people. So after the second wave of Aberdeen, I you know I joined a, another. I joined a band, a band called Langis, uh, and yeah, then I just started. I'd start projects with all sorts of people. I started working with you know I, I don't know. It just seemed fun to me to work with anybody on on productions and try and just get something cool. And you know I'd started all these various projects so from about 2004 to 2012 i'd probably worked in at least i don't know three to seven different different projects they all started ending the same way you know um and and after that last aberdeen sort of blowout the way it sort of ended um it was kind of I don't know, just things start, you know, I, I stopped expecting a new situation. To, I guess I, I wised up, you know, and I, I there was one project I was um, some younger guys I was I was working with and yeah, the same shit happened. You put in a bunch of years, put in a bunch of work and at the last minute, somebody else decides to sabotage you in some way and you were left with nothing because you collaborated. So I, I was frustrated by that. And I, I just, my options were pretty much to quit working on music, just to stop or to find a new project and go through the whole, the same cycle over again, or to just resign myself to the fact that if I do it on my own, maybe it won't won't be as good. Like I, I say that totally honestly, maybe I won't even like it, you know, um, but I'll be able to work, you know, so however I feel about what I'm doing, whatever my opinion is, that used to be the most important thing, you know, and if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't perfect, I didn't want any part of it. Um, and I, I just realized that, well, let's, let's, you know, I would rather work on something that was not that good by my own standards, even just to keep working, you know, because that's, that's what I really, that's what I like to do. So, you know, and I have plenty of ideas and, you know, demos that I figured I could just chip away at. So that was kind of the, you know, that was the point where I said, if I do this again, if I start another band, I'm an idiot, you know? And if I, if I do the dreaded solo project, if I start my own thing, it's going to hurt. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be painful. And I was not a young guy when I started. Um, but at least, you know, at least nobody can take that from you. And that's like something, you know, that's something Lemmy figured out at, at, at 30. And, you know, obviously like, you know, it's, you just, at some point you, you realize that if you have that thing, if you, you know, if you're the owner, you can collaborate with anybody still do anything, but you're always going to retain that that sort of corner security, that thing no one can take from you. Yes. Well, I think um, there was another band. They were quite a, yeah, they were quite an anarcho-punky band with a bit of a folk edge called Blythe Power. And I think because of the kind of political ethos, I think Joseph... Um, God, I can't remember. Joseph... God, I can't remember his surname. But anyway, Joseph said he always wanted it to be a collaborative and everyone have voting, you have a meeting and everyone agrees... And he said, and he said, it took him about thirty years to think. Actually, I'm not doing that. It's my band. I'm not going to put people on writing credits when they've done. You're nothing. just giving them an opportunity to destroy what you work for. Yes, I yeah. think. It, and he said it took and him. They will, it, every it, time. 
It took him 30 years. But I think if you come from the left of centre and you have certain principal ideas or dreams or sort of, you know, some feeling that this is what you should do because that's a decent thing, you realise that eventually most people will stab you in the back. No, that's that was my that's been my experience. Nine times out of 10, you know, I mean, I've definitely like worked with a couple of guys who are great, you know, and I'll still work with them to this day because of that. But um, but uh, the other nine times, it's literally the exact same thing every time. It's just human nature. You know, people see an opportunity to uh, whatever, take what they want from you and they do it because what they want matters way more you know yes did you did you sort of sometimes shout judas to people in in your sort of musical moments did i what ever ever scream judas to any member any members of band of, of you know fellow band I have recently <laughs> i have more recently for sure because <laughs> it sounds like you got stabbed a few times in the back yeah well, that's the way i see it anyway absolutely yeah, yeah so tra- well, traitors yeah traitors <laughs> so god because often asked this is the kind of last normal last bit what would you know what would you say to an 18 year old self you know because often people have developed you know uh, had experiences which kind of create certain wisdom and dust has settled you know and stuff i just wonder what you would just say I'll to an eight- to find a new field to work in <laughs> <laughs> I would say stay away from no look if you start I used to tell people that forever even when I you know even when I was still collaborating I would tell people um younger people I knew I would I would tell them do your own thing because no I I don't know I don't know what's wrong with me I guess I just really didn't want to be I didn't want to be a solo artist I didn't want to do it I'm, I didn't want to do that because I, I would have you know I I I would rather just do something good than do something that, that, you know, suits the ego. But, but I, I've been giving people that advice for a really long time to just do their own thing that, that they are in control of. And that's how kids do it now. You know, you barely see anybody who it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's more common to find a singular artist now because of, you know, button mashing and Ableton and, and whatever it is, you know, um, you know, be, dubstep and house and things like that those are one those are one artist genres you know and that's that's more you know or even songwriters where it's it's more it's more common that somebody is going to develop that singular skill on their own yes well i suppose people like i I suppose with anybody yeah yeah. and i was just going to say i suppose with david bowie once he got into the 70s and onwards each kind of musical kind of album, you know, he, he created a new band around it. And I suppose, you know, that was one way of doing it, that nobody suddenly muscled in and said, oh, David, you know, it's me and you, even Mick Ronson. So I guess, you know, that is... There was almost like an, that understanding is like firmly in place, you know. This is David Bowie, you know. It's like Mick Ronson can, can leave and it will still be David Bowie. Yes, and that's quite something. Yes. And that's that's what I love about Motorhead. You know, it's it's great. You know, filthy, you know, fast Eddie, they are they are those are that is the classic lineup, but there are plenty of lineups that are just as awesome, you know. But they and they did you know, they the the lineup is Lemmy. 
<laughs> yeah. like, yes, there was no, they, yeah, they weren't going to replace him and keep it going. They thought, no, that would be bad. But look, well, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you for giving me the time. Yes, it's been amazing. And let's hope that, uh, well, I hope your, your next musical project is, um, have you got much work you're working on at the moment? I, I'm always kind of working. Um, I have a couple of songs I'm in the middle of right now. I, I, I kind of dropped the, um, the band name aspect. So I've just been putting stuff out under, under my own name, you know, just kind of, you know, that thing, that sort of loose sort of thing that people get into when they just like realize they can do whatever they want. You know, I'm kind of just doing that where it's like a lot of the time I've just been putting out stuff under my own name. Um, I like the idea that it could annoy some, some people, some ex bandmates when it shows up on the same playlist and blog as them. Um, but you know, also I just figured, I don't know, it's just got a, there's a, you know, there's a, a pretense lacking there that's that's pretty nice to work with, and and yeah, I'm always I'm always working on stuff. Like I said, I try a couple new songs, and then you know, work. I, I have work that I'm doing, and I, I do. So you know, I'm, I'm always I could, wish I could. I'm sitting at the studio now, and I could, I could flip it around and show you. You'd see, but we're you're basically seeing what my computer sees all day every day so yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll send you you know I, I don't really get into promoting much you know anymore I, I post it on Bandcamp um make it available through whatever channels but I you know I'm not doing any physical stuff or anything like that I just put it out on the internet and then move on well I'll send you links to whatever I do oh that's me. cool I mean did you did you sort of find that with, with your sort of the moment in Aberdeen that I don't know, I was watching or listening to a sort of um, an interview with Susan Vega who said that her first couple of albums did did give her a bit of income and the ability to, to buy a flat somewhere. I mean, did you ever sort of get any sort of financial moment that you thought, oh, well, now, it's been a pain? There was a couple of paydays. There was a couple of paydays. The, the, but let me, I, I will not lie, the Buffy paydays were... There was a couple of Buffy paydays that were sweet. There was the one that was just the absolute greatest moment in music up to that point was was when um buffy exercised the dvd and video options and paid us for everything because they were doing box sets they paid us for everything we had in there uh at once so that was but it's nothing it was gone you know it was, it was nothing it was gone in a year and and i am still you know i mean i still get paid from me i get paid from, from music not not enough to call it a full-time living, but, you know, I'm still still working at it. So, you know, maybe fingers crossed that that payday is still, you know, no, I have no house. I just live in an apartment and I pay rent with whatever I can, you know, and and when when those, when, when I'm able to pay rent with music, those are good months, you know, yes. but, but that, but I'm definitely like, that's, you know, something I was, I still, that's like, that's current work, you know. Yes, it's a, it's a tricky one. Well, look, take care. <laughs> There have been some things. There have been some, even as a solo guy, you know, I had, um, uh, I did a, a, a Virgin um, Atlantic uh, radio ad that um, is, is about three years ago, which is paid, you know, whenever they renew it, it does a nice little payout. And, you know, there's, there's little things, there's a lot of little things, you know, a lot of little things like that. Yes. Well, they all count, don't they? As long as your expenses are in check. The hustle. Yeah. you got to hustle. Look, look, take care. And thank you again. And when I do this, I'll um, send you a link if you want. And um, you can always post it and people go. No, that's that's I really appreciate. Like this is actually, you know, it's like 
I, I don't do Skype calls really or Zoom or anything. And I, I'm not going to lie, I was super nervous about this. I, I was kind of relieved when I thought it wasn't going to happen. For <laughs> <him>. <laughs> but, uh, um, this has been really nice. And I would, I would love to talk to you anytime in the future. So keep in touch. I will. Look, take care, John. Let's keep yeah. going. Say, take care. See you later. Bye. bye. Okay, bye. And that dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you for listening. If you still are, well done. And um, yes, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Shire. That was uh, John Gigas from Aberdeen, the um, American indie band that were on Sarah Records. He's probably just said all that, hasn't he? Anyway, look, if you, if you want to get in contact me, with me for some nice reason let's keep it nice let's face it life is hard enough um you can on facebook twitter instagram just do at c86 show and uh, there you go fill your boots and also all these interviews have been archived so you can find those on podbean spotify and itunes there you go it's that simple anyway have a great week stay safe